tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad Dog Time, the Paperboy, Mordecai, after last season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films The World is Wrong About. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> this is Aaron Leonard. I'm the author of The Folk Singers and the Bureau, and you're listening to the Radio 8 Ball Show. Welcome to the Radio 8 Ball Show. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and this is the show where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting those randomly chosen songs as the answers to the questions like picking musical tarot cards. This is Radio 8 Ball Season 3, the Apony. 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 Where we are engaging the pop oracle using the Radio 8 Ball app, which is filled with every song recorded in the history of Radio 8 Ball, as well as a couple of hundred of my own. I hope by now you've downloaded the Radio 8 Ball app if you're an iPhone user. It's free and it allows you to play host and conduct your own musical divinations just as we do here on the show. The app also plays the latest podcast and selects the randomly chosen pop oracle song of the day. On last week's episode of Radio 8 Ball, I asked, Who do I know who's dying inside 
for a conversation I can provide. And received as my randomly chosen answer, Ceremonial Offering, performed by Chris Sandman Sand, live on Radio 8 Ball at Obsidian in Olympia, Washington, on September 23rd, 2015. Ceremonial off ring, off dash ring. The very first woman who I did marry was African-American, and she was very beautiful, humble, patient, and true. They say opposites attract, because in fact, they do. I was a dumbass punk back then, wicked harsh. She was a good woman, good, so smart. See, I was only 19. She was 26, but man, how we loved to hold hands and lock lips. Nothing kinky. She was devout. I put a ring on her finger, yeah, but it didn't pan out. <laughs> Ceremonial offering. I was too young. I think she found me exhausting. Plus, I was a heathen. She was into her God thing for a ceremonial offering strike the last few podcasts before i took a break well they kind of felt like i was devouring myself and it wasn't a pretty sight or sound i'd imagine so i decided not to force anything and let the pop oracle dictate its own schedule going forward as so often happens when left to its own devices inspiration struck In this case, it was when Pat Thomas, our guest from episode 637, introduced me to the work of Aaron J. Leonard, particularly his new book, The Folk Singers and the Bureau, The FBI, The Folk Artists, and the Suppression of the Communist Party USA, 1939-1956. As the date of this recording approached, National events surrounding the recent election, Donald Trump's attempts to oppose the results, and the Democratic Party's response to this filled the news. And it felt like a conversation about the treatment of American communists in the 20th century might be a valuable addition to the feverish nature of this moment in history. When people who claim to be on the left are cheering for censorship and sweeping anti-domestic terrorist legislation from an incoming president who has bragged about writing the Patriot Act and the 94 Crime Bill, both of which are responsible for tremendous human suffering and loss of life, those of us who know about the history of this country's war against popular people's movements can't help but wish there was a greater understanding of this history from our fellow countrymen and women. I sincerely hope our conversation recorded here will contribute in some small way to this greater understanding of our own history. In the meantime, I hope you'll do all the things that I always ask in terms of supporting the show, download the app, support our Patreon campaign, and give us good ratings and reviews on iTunes. I also want to give an extra big shout-out to all of our new listeners in India. At this point, we have more listeners in your country than in my own. Considering how quickly the U.S. is devolving, I guess I take this as a sign that we might be doing something right. Now let's get down to this session with the Pop Oracle and kick it off with the randomly chosen Pop Oracle Song of the Day from January 13th when I recorded my session with Aaron J. Leonard. It's the appropriately titled Paranoid Times from Alex Lilly with Vikram Devastali, recorded at Starburns Industries in Burbank, California, almost exactly two years earlier on January 14th. 2019. 
There's no tiger after you, no predator on the move. Yet all you do is run from paradise. The unreal feels so near, it's so hazy here. Nothing's clear. Smoke gets in your eyes. Where do I begin with the state I'm in? Sink or swim? We're living in paranoia times. Where do I begin with the state I'm in? Sink or swim? We're living in paranoia times. Has it always been this way, or are these hazy days we're willing pray we love our own demise? People are so critical. I know 'cause I'm critical. We're all just animals that talk and talk and talk about the thing in the bushes. Where do I begin with the state I'm in? Sink or swim? State I'm in, sink or swim. We're living in paranoia times. Where do I begin with the state I'm in, sink or swim? We're living in paranoia times. Ha 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 And we're here with Aaron J. Leonard, the author of The Folk Singers and the Bureau, which documents just that, the American folk scene in the late 1930s and the beginning of World War II through the rise of anti-communism in America. Folks like Pete Seeger and the Weavers, Woody Guthrie, Burl Ives, Lead Belly, Paul Robeson, and others who the FBI treated as threats to the country for singing about unions and people's movements, and in some cases, for being members of the Communist Party. Welcome to Radio 8 Ball, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. You came to our attention through a former guest on the show, Pat Thomas. And how do you know Pat? Uh, I know Pat through a mutual friend, Matt Callahan, who is uh, a writer and activist. Matt actually lives in Europe. Uh, he introduced me to, to Pat and Pat's uh, writing. He's he's great. Uh, his book on Jerry Rubin and his book on the Black Panthers are both ones that people who enjoy this conversation might want to check out after they've yeah. purchased your book, uh, The Folk Singers and the Bureau, and uh, mm -hmm. and gone through it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just uh, the Wall Street Journal today has an article on the Chicago Seven. They seem all up in arms that. Uh, a whole new generation is being introduced to people like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. So it's good Pat is you know, doing good work. Yeah, The Trial of the Chicago 7 seems to be a film that is sort of pissing off people uh, across the political spectrum. People who were, who were very familiar with 
that trial and the Times feel like the movie does it a disservice by sort of playing, sort of excising a lot of the actual history and sort of playing fast and loose with it. And then you have people on the other side who are like, how dare anyone resurrect the images of Abby and Jerry and the others? So uh, did you have you seen the film? Do you have a take on it? No, you know, I, I guess I do need to see the film. But, you know, I was uh, I was like 12 or 13 when that trial was going on. And uh, something about it just captured my imagination. You know, I was 12 or 13 and I looked at these these folks and they were just cool. I mean, you know, like in hindsight, they're like uh, all these white guys with the exception of Bobby Seale. So, you know, there were limits. But, uh, you know, the the attitude, the kind of cult, counterculture sensibility and the in your face against a lot of the authoritarianism was very appealing. So I could see why even now, all these years later, it would still be appealing. I'll, I'll watch the film, but I remember actually getting a book of the transcripts of the trial at the time, time and, you know, the whole, uh, some of the best culture of the 60s was being introduced into that format, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, I was able to watch the film and enjoy it, and at the same time, there was a part of my brain that was screaming, what? No! What? No! Like, but at the same time, it was like, oh, but Sasha Baron Cohen playing Abby Hoffman, you know, I'll take my Abby where I can get it. You know, there's not enough. Yeah, I was uh, walking down 34th Street in the uh, early 80s, and I saw Abby. I was actually walking behind Abby. He kept turning around, turning around. He was like looking for, you know, somebody following him. I think he was going to go buy some drugs or something. But that's that's my big <laughs> Abby Hoffman story. It's funny, around the same time, I I was in high school and I met him at an anti-nuke rally on the Boston Common. And we were basically, I was standing in line to go to the bathroom and he was behind me in line and I let him cut in order so that I could interview him for my school paper. So, Oh, very cool. <laughs> I, uh, was... no, well, Abby was special. I mean, he was special, you know. Yeah. Not without his faults, but... Uh... He was pretty heroic. Uh, Ruben, too, in his heydays, all those people, you know, all those young men and women who kind of risked everything for what they believed was right. And I guess maybe that's a good place to dive in here because they are very much standing on the shoulders of the people you write about in your book. These, the... The folk singers, the communists, the union organizers of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and uh, leading up till the into the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement in the 60s. Do you want to connect those two? Yeah, for sure. Because uh, I mean, as you were saying that, you know, most people think of Pete Seeger as this uh, kind of balding, gray-haired, bearded man. You know, who sang these uh, Pacific songs about where have all the flowers gone. Uh, but if you look at, you know, his origins as a influential artist, he's a young guy in his early 20s. Um, Woody Guthrie is, is young. I mean, Woody Guthrie, you don't actually ever think of as being young, but, you know, he was in his 20s. Uh, 
Ronnie Gilbert of the Weavers, Fred Hellman, they were like teenagers when um, Seeger was like 24, 25, something along those lines. Alan Lomax, the music collector, was a couple years older than Seeger. Uh, these people were youth um, who grew up in the 30s. They, you know, passed adolescence in the 30s. And, you know, one of the coolest things out there um, as far as, you know, something challenging the status quo in the context of the depression, a globally, you know, economic crisis, high unemployment, evictions, uh, the working class, there was a whole lot of industry in the United States and workers were treated awfully, um, you know, no safeguards, you know, extra hours, you know, bad overtime, no social security. So there was this communist party in the United States that was speaking to uh, remedying all that. And some of the most radical, radically inclined people were attracted to the Communist Party. I mean, we can look back at the Communist Party now and, uh, you know, diagnose the faults, the shortcomings, and and even some of the outrageous things uh, they did. But, it, you know, it's important to not lose sight of, you know, the actual appeal. They spoke to something fundamental in, in these young artists and they were artists really more than political people um, were both attracted to those left-wing politics but they were also exploring this whole body of culture of, of uh, folk music you know broadly defined which you know didn't just mean hillbilly songs or carter family songs it meant you know songs of uh, work songs from african americans who were a generation or two away from slavery, uh, you know, cowboy songs, you know, just this vast array of wonderful music that, you know, had been socially produced. And, you know, they, they grabbed onto it and tried to popularize it. So they were, you know, in their day, they were like, they were what on the cutting edge of things, you know, much in the way some of these radicals we just talked about in the Chicago 7 and their cultural compliments like Phil Oaks or Jefferson Airplane, you know, people of that sort were in the later, uh, in the later part of the long 60s. So there's a, a continuity, you know, you don't get to choose your elders, you know, <laughs> but if you're wise, uh, you get to appreciate, you know, what's good there. Yeah. And to just dig in a little bit more, to what you're talking about, the Communist Party in America, particularly, I guess, in the 20th century. I guess there is a feeling, and I think this comes from a lot of what you write about, of the need to, like, really be like, okay, well, yes, the communists were, they, there was things that were wrong, but dot, dot, dot. But we never say the same thing about the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or Ford Motors or, you know, that there was what those folks were up against were also entities that had that were a mixed bag of sort of dangerous and aspirational depending upon you know how much credit you want to give them and i just wanted to say so i wanted to see if you wanted to talk a little bit about the role that the communist party played in terms of movements that we consider very positive, like the civil rights movement or the labor movement or basically people's movements in the 20th century. Yeah, you know, it's a, 
it's important. I mean, um, I mean, before I go a little bit into that, it's like it's it's almost impossible to talk about U.S. communism reasonably in the United States. I mean, it's just so loaded with all these assumptions. Oh, so you're talking about Stalin. You're talking about, you know, famine, millions killed, etc. I, I once gave a, a, a talk at NYU about uh, a Maoism in the United States. And, uh, you know, the guy who was, uh, I won't name him, but he was kind of supervising the event. He's kind of a mainstream pundit now. I mean, he just felt compelled to say, how how could you possibly have ever, you know, because I was, how could you have possibly ever been a Maoist? And I, you know, it just reminded me of uh, a review of Henry Kissinger's book in the New York Times by uh, their main literary critic who was taking him to task for writing a book about China and not mentioning you know, the starvation during the Great Leap Forward and the other atrocities in Mao. And, uh, you know, she, she never actually gets the hypocrisy that she's talking about Henry Kissinger, who supervised this war in Vietnam and, and you know, helped uh, engineer the coup in Chile. It, it's just, it's not to say that, you know, the communists in the uh, 20th century didn't, you know, make huge mistakes and are responsible for certain of them, responsible for pretty heinous crimes. But it's more like if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about the whole picture. It's not like good guys versus uh, bad guys. So saying that, back to your point, I mean, you know, the communists in the 30s, 40s and 50s, I mean, they were sticking their necks out, necks out for issues other people wouldn't go near. I mean, the NAACP did some pretty mighty work um, against lynching and such, but I, my sense is, and you know, I mean, historically, I need to dig into this more. A lot of their struggle was in the legal realm. Uh, the communists actually did, you know, field work among sharecroppers, black and white. They, they wanted to try to do, you know, multinational or multi-ethnic, multiracial uh, coalitions. You know, they did campaigns against lynching. They did uh, this campaign against the Scottsboro boys who were, I believe it was nine young men accused of raping a white woman. And it, it seems like the whole thing was a setup. But the communists were the only ones who came to their, you know, defense. I mean, they were the only ones who were willing to put it all on the line. You know, and they weren't just white. The Communist Party was not just white. They had an element of black cadre and black support. So there was a a unified um, stand being taken. But they were one of the few forces that were willing to go all the way to say, you know, this the treatment of black people in in the United States is is abysmal and it needs to stop. You know, it's that's part of their legacy. They they did these unemployed councils where. If somebody got them evicted, you know, the sheriffs would take the furniture out onto the streets and the uh, councils would come and they'd pick the furniture and they'd take it back in. Um, you know, everybody else was just kind of talking about maybe there ought to be reform, but the, the communists were actually, you know, being very proactive. So, I mean, that's part of the appeal and part of the, the legacy that doesn't get discussed too much. 
Yeah, we hear a lot about how people tried to delegitimize the civil rights movement by saying that it was just a communist front. But we don't hear necessarily how the Communist Party was actually... It wasn't that the communists were supporting civil rights to try and overthrow America. It's that a communists in America, and I think there's a difference between talking about the Soviet Union and talking about American communists, but communists in America were the ones who were motivated to become communists. Sort of what motivated them to become communists was also what motivated them to build unions and to fight segregation and that these are all of a piece. And there's something in our historical knowledge that wants to separate out and say, well, if you were a communist who was working for civil rights, then you were just trying, you were doing it because you just wanted to overthrow the government. In the same way that maybe people now say that uh, foreign powers like the are trying to uh, inflame racial indignation in America as a way of delegitimizing America as opposed to well, there are some real problems in America and you don't need to want to overthrow the government to want to uh, address systematic racism, right? Well, I, you know, it's, uh, it's a thorny issue. Everybody has an agenda. I mean, the first thing is, you know, as you were saying, I was, I was thinking, well, nobody accuses the Democratic Party of trying to infiltrate the civil rights movement for their own aims. Right. But that's that's exactly what they were doing. And, you know, they're still doing it. Uh, everybody has an agenda. And within the Communist Party uh, in the United States, I mean, there were very radical people who wanted revolution. And then my sense is, you know, I mean, they had a membership at the end of the 40s of around 80,000 people and their membership was more broad and my sense is most of the members were more social democratically inclined uh, i mean by the 60s in the civil rights movement the party had dwindled to a few thousand people but even there uh people communists going into the civil rights movement you know some of them were pushing you know the greater benefits of the Soviet foreign policy and, and trying to insert that into U.S. society. But I think the bulk of people were fighting for racial justice. They thought it was right, and they just happened to be members of the Communist Party. But everybody did have an agenda. I mean, the people uh, who worked with King, I mean, it's, it's still controversial. Uh, Stanley Levinson, whether or not he was actually a concealed communist at the point he was working with Martin Luther King. Uh, and then there were others who were, you know, less concealed. Uh, but, you know, fundamentally, I mean, the, the party working in those coalitions were not going beyond the politics of the particular organization. I mean, they weren't going into the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and trying to turn it atheist. I mean, they were basically trying to push the same program as, as Martin Luther King. And the reason that people were not... Uh, you might say that the reason people weren't identified with the Communist Party was because of exactly the kind of uh, the kind of things that you document in your book. That it became it's sort of like it feel it feels like at one point if you opposed segregation and supported unions, it was a natural thing to join the Communist Party, and then 
persecuting people who were in the Communist Party was used as a proxy to go after segregationists and civil rights, I mean, and union organizers. And then basically you had, and then it was sort of like the opposite. Now, you, if you want to work with those, if you want to be a civil rights organizer and a labor activist, then you have to leave the Communist Party because now that has been sort of made politically toxic. It's just one of those uh, things that I'm always interested in is the way that definitions change over time and that context and the logic around these movements changes over time because of how they are opposed by the state as opposed to necessarily the definitions or what they are actually changing. Well, I mean, you're raising a a very important point. And let me try to come back to it in the context of the the folk singers. Because, you know, at a certain point they were, you know, Alan Lomax worked for the Library of Congress. Uh, He worked for CBS Radio, which at a point where radio was the, the biggest mass medium. You know, it was before television was a thing. Lomax got people like Guthrie and Seeger and Burl Ives on the radio. Um, so they they were actually able to perform in the mainstream public square. Uh, but when the second Red Scare got going in earnest in 47, all of that stuff ended. You know, and it ended because suddenly the world was a different world. It was no longer... You know, the post-World War One world, it was the post-World War Two world. And the United States was the bastion and defender of Western capitalism. And as a result, they were not going to tolerate a domestic communist party, you know, period, full stop. Uh, and they moved on it. They, uh, I mean, I had to do this when I, I wrote the book. I confronted... Uh, that most of these people had associations with the party. Most of them had been members. Some of them were members I had no idea. Um, at least uh, to the degree I have confidence of what's in some of these FBI files. Uh, uh, Alan Lomax's sister, Bess Lomax Hawes. I mean, she wrote this famous song uh, with Jacqueline Steiner, the MTA, that the Kingston Trio had a hit with. Uh, Bess Lomax stayed in t- the party until 1957, you know, her and her husband. Uh, I had no idea. You read her memoir, she doesn't mention it at all. I mean, none of these people mention too much. Seeger is probably the most candid because he could be. You know, Seeger had been, you know, ravaged uh, in the media and public square as a communist. He didn't have anything to hide in order to make a living. He'd already made uh, those adjustments. But these other people, you know, they, you know, if they came out openly as having a communist past, it would have seriously impacted uh, their ability to find work. But in the post-World War II period, uh, suddenly you had to really hide your communism. The United States was not going to have, like Europe, you know, where you had Euro-communism. That was not going to happen. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, it started... With Truman passing things like the Taft-Hartley Act, which said if you were a communist, you couldn't have a leading union position, forcing some of the communist union leaders either to quit the party or to quit the union. And it was really debilitating because it was a source of strength for the party. 
the government indicted the leaders of the party. This is like heavy. Uh, the Smith Act said you can't advocate or teach the desirability of overthrowing the government. I mean, that law has kind of been neutered now, and you can do advocacy. But if you look at what Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani said last week, um, theoretically, they, they should have been in prison under the Smith Act. Uh, you know, they didn't even just advocate theoretically the desirability of revolution. They talked about using force to change the standing politics. Well, the, the leaders of the Communist Party, 11 of them, were convicted and sent to prison for five years, most of them, you know, in 1949 for violating the Smith Act. Uh, and it was part of decapitating the party. And it went hand in hand with things like loyalty oaths, HUAC hearings, um, and the Taft-Hartley Act. So, you know, it was a big shift between 1946-47 and 1948-49. Suddenly, communism was, you know, forbidden. And it, it's kind of remained that way. I mean, it wasn't until the 60s that that got shook up a little bit. Well, it also it's also important to know that communism became a term that you could use to go after gay people, people, you know, people any who wanted to be who might express that or uh or civil or people who wanted to advocate for civil rights or oppose racism or just Jews that they didn't that they found <laughs> they didn't want to be in their in their midst. Like it became it the targets of anti-communism were often the same targets, the targets that were focused on by white supremacist terrorist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. And so I feel like that's, I think that one of the reasons that it became, that it, it it's, I think it's important to know about this. And I actually want to lead to a question for the pop oracle here, if we can get into the musical divination part of this show. Um, about this because I feel like the effect of these communist purges were to remove ideas and points of view that I think a lot of us might agree with now from the, you know, just remove them from the political spectrum, remove them from the debate. And, uh, you know, we know politics is a game of... You know, taking advantage of what's there. So if you can use anti-communism to go after your political enemies, even if you don't really sincerely think they're communists, then there are people who will do that. And then what's left is this big uh, area of forbidden territory and a generation of thinkers that are removed from newspapers and magazines and radio stations and TV stations and publishing deals, while at the same time elevating people who are actively opposing these, what we consider to be generally good ideas like equality and freedom and civil rights and whatnot. But I, this is where I want to lead into a question, because I have a question about this, and we, and you kind of touched on it right there. We are in a, we're in a unique historical moment. And and so I feel like there's something I wanted to bring that into this conversation, if you're OK with that. Sure. I've got the uh, the Radio 8 Ball app open here. And my question for the Pop Oracle is this. How would a better understanding of the history of American communism 
help us navigate this historical moment. And now I'm going to give it a shake and we'll see what the Pop Oracle's answer for us is. Huh. <laughs> okay. It's Steve Poltz with a song called Super Taco Dilemma. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, let's listen to that. Super Taco Dilemma. We're driving home from Hermosa Beach. Had a dollar sixty-three between the three of us. Pulled in a jack-in-the-box for a super taco. El Nino was a poor damn rain. We cut up that super taco into six pieces with a steak knife. Almost rear-ended a cop car on the way out. Super taco flew right out the window. We ate it right out of the gutter. Soggy brown lettuce. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty deep. <laughs> yeah. And that was Super Taco Dilemma from Steve Pulse, recorded on Radio 8 Ball on KAOS in Olympia on April 5th, 2005. And that was the answer to my question. How would a better understanding of the history of American communism help us navigate this historical moment? Okay, there there was very little, but there was a lot there. What do you make of that as the answer to my question? Well, you know, I mean, they're talking about one taco for six people. Uh, <laughs> you know, hard times, right? Hard times or fighting times. I, I mean, you could read a lot into it. I mean, there's a lot of humor uh, in that lyric. But, there was, you, know, the, you know, I was thinking about this, this earlier because there's all this... Uh, it's kind of what does the government do for us anyways, right? I mean, the government here is fundamentally, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, it's really about making business function well. It's about, you know, capital being able to circulate and profit being able to be made. You know, the, the money for the government goes to the uh, military. It goes to the police. You know, it goes to protect private and corporate property and then it protects these inequality and these divisions and you know you know the 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 uh the spirit of communism and socialism is antithetical to that it's saying you know society ought to be run for the people who constitute it and the wealth created by society ought to be you know for those who you know, live in it, and particularly for those who, you know, create the wealth. So we're not having a super taco dilemma, but we, you know, we can't even talk about it. I mean, even somebody like Bernie Sanders, who I know a lot of people love, um, I think he has actually a pretty modest uh, program, but even he is uh, put forward as some kind of raving red, 
Yeah. You know, in, in certain quarters. I mean, it's like we just don't talk about certain things in the United States when, in fact, uh, we ought to be talking about certain things. You know, we ought to be talking about which side are you on? You know, a song written, I think, for coal miners uh, that, that Seeger picked up. Uh, you probably know who actually it was a woman writer. I forget her name. Florence Reese, I'm going to say. Um, you know, this song's still relevant because the, the the issues are still there. There's all of us, and then there's them, and then there's this uh, whole section of people who have been kind of uh, manipulated into a certain view of reality that's against their interests. I was thinking, I wonder what the Trump people would be thinking if they were actually hungry, you know, because, you know, all these people who came to Washington, I, I just saw that. Uh, Airbnb said they're not going to give them any reservations. You know, it takes a certain middle class, even lower middle class status to be able to go to Washington, D.C. and rent an Airbnb, you know, and that's uh, not exactly the situation in the 30s and 40s that our people came out of. And it's not a situation that's true for a lot of people living in this country right now. It's a little bit of a divergence, but it's a maybe that's by way of a provocation of the times we're living in. I, I think we're living in a country undergoing some mighty shifts from being the greatest country, most wealthy, most powerful country in the world to perhaps something else. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I do and try and unpack the song a little bit, but I I want to I. I I feel like I have to. What I want to do is be in this conversation with you, and we'll we'll get it back in on the track. But as I unpack it, I'm looking at it. So there's a situation. Steve Paltz is driving along. He's in at that point in 2005. This uh, you know sort of neoliberal nightmare. <laughs> he's trying. You know, he's trying to trying to find his way though. Trying to to live a a creative life not dissimilar from Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie out singing his songs for people and making common cause with them. And, but all that he can eat is this super taco. All the, you know, it's not, there's not, and the reasons for a, the, there being a Taco Bell everywhere instead of a little taco stand owned by a mom and a pop somewhere does get back to this history. But he doesn't know this. He just inherits this world of super tacos. And they can only afford one. And I think they might be surprised if you told them, hey, you know, the way you're approaching this taco is a little bit communist. I mean, why are you, in, why are you insulting us with this? It's like, no, it's not an insult. It's a compliment. It's a compliment. If you knew your history, you'd understand that you are... You're part of a, a tradition that goes even further back than communism. Communism was just made to describe something which is basically sharing the resources with your fellow, you know, fellow travelers. And but I find it interesting that in that the song tells us they the song even knows like in trying to just put their toe in this, they immediately run up against the law and almost run into a cop car and then the they and then with this engagement with the law they lose all of their resources they go flying out the window and they have to eat them out of the trash and or out of the gutter as they say 
But at least they're eating it out of the gutter together. But again, this is like if they knew their history and a, like the history of law enforcement, the history of corporations, the history of communism, they might understand the dilemma, right? The super taco dilemma is what this is about. It's like they're trying to figure out how do we navigate this and they don't know. Um, and then the only other thing I just wanted to point out is that super taco dilemma. I don't know if anagram is probably the wrong word. What's the word? Uh, basically, it's STD. It's a sexually trans. It also sort of functions as like a sexually transmitted disease, which I would say maybe the way I look at it, and this is where we'll get back to the conversation, is that it's not necessarily a sexually transmitted disease, but it's a psychologically transmitted disease. This disease of seeing the idea... So the one positive thing in the story is the sharing of the taco. and But that is what will be painted as negative. Taco Bell is a beloved institution. The cops keep you safe. And, you know, and... And the logic of the cops and the corporation might be, well, you deserve to be eating out of the gutter. You should have bought six super tacos. That would have been the American thing to do. But you are punished for for trying to share because of this psychologically transmitted disease, which comes to us from, well, exactly what you're documenting in your book. The, the, The state's not just repression of a of an organization but of the ideas associated with that organization which you know really are basically the ideas that you would think would be foundational to a christian a supposedly christian country but aren't so okay so that's my that's my uh, musical divination take on that song and how it relates to my question <laughs> But I and if you want to comment on it, you can. But I really want to get into talking about this particular historical moment because I do feel like you are ideally situated, and maybe in this conversation we're ideally situated to maybe look at what's going on in the world right now in a way that others who are not aware of the history of labeling people disloyal or, uh, you know, where that leads and the context of that. So, um, so Aaron, just in general, what do you think when you see people talking about uh, criminalize? Again, it's hard because we don't necessarily agree with the the dissenters, but criminalizing dissent in the way that people seem to right now. You know, I uh, I, I need to. My inclination is to be a little cautious because everything is still unfolding and it's not clear how all this resolves. One thing I'm struck about, you know, events of the last week is how the people with actual power haven't quite settled on what they need to do. I mean, they're riven. I mean, the Democrats have one way they want to go. The Republicans actually seem to be split. Um, and, and Trump's base seems to be somewhat split. So everything's being pulled in a lot of different uh, directions. I will say this, because um, I was working on something. I'm working on a book now about uh, music, rebellion, and repression in the long 60s. Uh, and I'm trying to interweave uh, some of the musical movements going on with the political events. So, you know, you have 19... 19- 
64, you've got this song, Dancing in the Streets, and you've got um, civil rights activity in Alabama. You've got the Civil Rights Act uh, getting passed in uh, Martin Luther King and his Gandhian notion of nonviolence. But then in July, you have a riot in Harlem because a cop, a white cop, killed a 15-year-old black kid going to summer school. Um, and a riot ensued for several days. And this African-American, uh, you know, I guess he would be a revolutionary. He was part of this group, the Progressive Labor Movement, uh, Bill Epton. Bill Epton is a Korean War veteran. Uh, he's a radical. And he gives a speech in, in Harlem. And then uh, subsequently, people march to the police station and, you know, the riot extends. Uh, Epton is arrested and charged with a New York statute uh, that's saying you can't advocate to overthrow the government. You know, they claimed he incited the crowd. He was convicted. He spent a year in Rikers jail. And I mean, it was and there was no hesitation. There was no ambiguity. I mean, I think I would argue fundamentally these sedition and insurrection laws have been aimed at the left. Um, because the left is the greater threat. I think, you know, the events in in Washington, D.C. are a lot murkier. I mean, you have actual elements of the ruling authorities. You know, I understand, you know, you've got a lot of recent military veterans. You've got some politicians. You've got some police. So it's a different kind of situation. And I think it's confusing for you know, the powers that be, if you will, as to how to actually approach this. I mean, you know, in a in a certain certain sense, it's it's like a no-brainer. Trump gave a speech. He advocated violence. People did violence. But here it's all like, oh, you know, is this really that? Blah, blah, blah. And I think the uh, confusion stems from these laws weren't written, you know, to suppress powerful people. These laws were written to suppress people on the bottom. And Epton, by the way, I don't think really did advocate violence. I think he gave a general statement about, you know, the need for revolution, you know, in a theoretical way. Um, and he was, by the way, recorded by a undercover police person. Um, but then the other point, and just to kind of take it back to my book, is, uh, is, uh, you know, they don't want this kind of stuff out there, period. And I think it goes back to some of what you were saying about the, your analysis of the uh, super tackle. Um, you know, Oscar Brand was on the radio for like 62 years. And he worked with some of these communists in the 40s. Uh, but he was branded as a, as a fellow traveler. I don't think he was. But he came out and he gave a speech at Cooper Union in New York denouncing communism. Uh, but this this uh, publication, Red Channels, which was this, essentially a blacklisting book, was going to name him as a communist supporter. And he tried mightily to get off that list, to not end up in that book, to be able to continue his career in radio. And he, he was walking the line uh, between not wanting to be a snitch or an informant and you know naming names but at the same time not wanting to be identified with communism which he appears to not have had much 
sympathy with. Um, but in the archives, I found uh, the notes on a letter that he had written to Red Channels imploring them to, you know, take him off the list. And they said, uh, well, you know, I mean, to paraphrase, I don't think we're going to do that because, you know, it's not just the music and the songs and the statements. It's like, you know, even sympathizing with this stuff, you, you give them power, you give them moral support, you legitimate it. And there are certain things in this country from the Weavers at a certain point, Pete Seeger to Phil Oaks, even Bob Dylan and the Beatles. Um, you know, they're just not welcome in the public square. I mean, the Beatles, uh, I just came across this fascinating thing where this AFL union tried to get the Beatles banned from performing in the U.S. in 64, 65 because it was taking jobs away from American musicians. Well, objectively, this is actually a, a cultural assault, despite all the nuance of language and stuff. So there's there's certain music and, and ideas that are, look, it's great to sing about sex, and it seems like the culture is pretty comfortable with, you know, pushing the envelope on that. But when it comes to ideas that actually challenge the status quo or even challenge our thinking, um, it tends to get a lot more repressive. Sometimes that's directly by groups like Red Channels, and sometimes it's just the culture itself just just pushing against it, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, the park police, you know, against a public performance or, or a media outlet deciding whether or not to publicize something. It's a bit of a rambling uh, response, but... Um, I think it speaks to some of what you're asking. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I just it, the hypocrisy is saying that, well, you don't have just even if you're not a member of the Communist Party, if you sympathize with some of the things that they care about, that's bad enough. But if you you couldn't apply the same thing to the people who give tacit support to the Ku Klux Klan, but or to racist police departments which are infiltrated by the clan it's just like it's this the logic only works one way and i think that's kind of what you're getting at in the confusion of how to deal with what went on with what's going on right now in this country with trump and the the you know the language we even use to describe the protest riot insurrection on the capitol grounds and i think that maybe Going to like what my question was, like something about an awareness of the history of American communists and the way they were they've been treated and the anti-communist movement in this country might lead one to be cautious. As you said, like I'm a little bit cautious in how I talk about this because everything's still in play and we don't really know what's going on. And I feel like that kind of caution comes from an awareness of history whereas someone who's maybe just looking at the coverage might not be aware that shouting oh well blah 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 they're this da, 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 they're that they're that i'm in i'm in i'm in favor of new legislation to clamp down on sedition and all these like this are like maybe you just hold your hold your powder just a little bit there bucko there's a history there's a history that goes along with this and you you want to be careful that you're not one of those people who says hey i believe in 
you know, yeah, I believe that everyone should be free in America, but those communists who are fighting for the Scottsboro boys, they're only doing it because they're foreign agents and they should be punished. And it's the language we use is really important. And a lack of awareness of the history that you're talking about in your book. And I really do encourage people to check out the the book, The Folk Singers and the Bureau, because um, we're here. I mean, we're here to talk about this, but we're also here to encourage people to do the research for themselves and to, to educate themselves about this history. And we can only go into so much. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think just, just to kind of add on that is one thing I, I think I'm pretty uh, not conflicted about. The people who argue had the protests of Black Lives Matter uh, done anything near what was done last Wednesday, the response would have been qualitatively more violent against the demonstrators. Um, There is, you know, like I say, these laws are aimed to protect the status quo. I think what we saw last week was, you know, in, in old Marxist terms, it's the ruling class is split. It's fighting amongst itself, so things are getting weird. Um, you know what it all means and how it shakes out. I don't even think they know yet, although it's, it seems like things are moving ahead rapidly. But you know, I mean, the the site of I believe it was National Guard at the Lincoln Memorial uh, back in the summer. That's that's what if you really are challenging, you know, the standing institutions. That's what you're going to be confronted with. So. Yeah, we're hearing reports that there were there were many police who were among the crowd uh, at the Capitol coming from my area, Seattle. I was just listening to a report on Democracy Now! and they were talking about how there were Seattle many Seattle police who were there, and there were people like from the Philadelphia Transit Authority, like cops who came down organized as a group to be a part of these protests. And when you hear about cops and sort of infiltrating protests from the other side it's not to assist those protests it's to create the context and the provocation for for reprisals and so i think that's you see the difference right there yeah i you're reminding me uh, i remember during the republican national convention uh i think it might have been george bush's second term there were all kinds of uh, you know progressive and leftist demonstrating. And, you know, we just heard uh, yesterday that the FBI had issued a memo about Washington the day before last week's events saying, you know, look, this is looking bad. Um, And I remember in Philly in, I think, 2004, um, the police and state police actually raided this warehouse where people were producing puppets to take into the street. There was no hesitation. There was preemptive arrests Mm -hmm. and moves to clamp down, um, which is in keeping with, you know, let's keep the money flowing. Let's keep the the social relations as oppressive as they are all in place. You know, let's keep the music, you know, you know, non-incendiary, non, you know, controversial in 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 a more meaningful way. It's uh, it's like the larger state apparatus as you were as it were um that's the role it it plays i mean i I don't actually cotton to this notion i i know people disagree that there's a deep state i mean i think there's a state that stays in place year round and doesn't get elected but 
the state fundamentally groups like the CIA and FBI and Homeland Security. I mean, they're part of a standing apparatus to make sure uh, things run, and and that's what our folk singers confronted. You know, uh, J. Edgar Hoover sat over the FBI that was empowered by Franklin Roosevelt. You know, this great icon of liberalism. Um, wrote, you know, Hoover's power didn't come from his own machinations. I mean, yeah, he he machinated, if there is such a word, but but somebody empowered him. Somebody. Allowed him to do the things he did against you know, people like Woody Guthrie and Cisco Houston. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm got a little bit hooked up on the machinated. I just I'm like I'm, as a songwriter. As soon as you say, I love non-words like that. Like I wanted to throw that into like money for nothing. J. Edgar Hoover, he machinated. <laughs> well, you can, you're welcome to use that. Uh, not to get distracted, I'm sorry. When I read your book, I it was confronting because it doesn't read like history to me. It re, you know, it's sort of like it's like reading about the history of you know the the land that your house is built on. If there's stuff in it that's problematic, your house is still on it. It's still current. It's it, everything that you write about in your book struck me as a as present day concerns. And as an artist who has uh, devoted myself, like, I'll tell you a little story. I uh, for a while I was managed by someone who worked with Billy Bragg's management, who also at the time managed Michael Franti of Spearhead, uh, and at the time the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. So real like iconic activist songwriters and I was an up-and-coming young songwriter and I uh, I had a meeting with one of one of these folks and I told him that I was really inspired by their clients and that I wanted to I also wanted to I consider myself a political songwriter and he was like well not if you want to have a career don't don't do ah. and <laughs> this is someone this is not coming from some cigar chomping pop guy this is someone who's working with those folks and i didn't take his advice and he was correct so he was he gave me good advice and i didn't take it and uh it just makes me want to ask you as someone who has explored this uh this topic and obviously you care a lot about music you're continuing to write about it and connect with it are there activists, songwriters, artists that are going now that you are aware of and particularly maybe ones that are that are not inside like some of them might say oh the Dixie Chicks they're you know they might do an activist song but I don't necessarily consider them activist songwriters because if you my experience is if is if you are then you're not going to get to that level like you maybe they kind of played a nice bait and switch on the on the establishment, which I really approve of, but I'm kind of more curious from your standpoint of the maybe the more below the radar people who you feel like are currently inspiring you as far as songwriters or musicians or artists. You know, I really wish I were more up on this. I mean, unfortunately, uh, uh, I've I've kind of fallen a little behind. But as you're phrasing the question, I was trying to think. I. I you know, there was this whole upsurge in hip-hop music in the late 80s, early 90s. 
Um, and, and now look at where it is. I mean, uh, you know, you actually had a mainstream group, you know, Public Enemy, that were saying some pretty audacious things, or even more recently, I think it's the 90s now, the coup in Boots Riley. You know, he was doing some, some pretty cutting edge stuff. And I think in the hip hop world, there are people who are, you know, politically conscious or, you know, on the consciousness tip, as they would say, you know, trying to say something, but they're not breaking into the mainstream. I mean, one, one thing I discovered about in writing this book is that the blacklist is not this, uh, it's not like a federal policy. It's not like a law. It's not like a thing. It's this, uh, it's this process. Look, on the one hand, there's this book, Red Channels, that existed in the early 50s. And if your name was in it, you're not going to be on radio or TV. Uh, at the same time, Pete Seeger, you know, he had a career. Uh, you know, he was with this group, the Weavers. They were top of the charts between 50 and 52. Uh, and then they got denounced as communists by this informant, Harvey Matuso. Uh, and suddenly all their top flight gigs you know, were, were turned off. The group was allowed to exist. Um, you know, they were, they could still play. I mean, they even were able to book Carnegie Hall, but they weren't on the radio. You know, they couldn't play major venues. Um, you know, Seeger, you know, eventually left the group. Um, in certain gigs, he would be turned away from, but he could play the college circuit. And it's like, it's akin to, you can shout as loud as you want, just don't leave your bedroom. You know, it's like the United States is wealthy enough that it can tolerate these voices of dissent as long as not too many people hear them. But, you know, God help you if you start to get out there more broadly. I mean, I've, I've recently been listening to uh, Phil Oaks, you know, and oh, some yeah. of his stuff is so brilliant. And so very, very few people know who he is. Sadly. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it's like, well, you can argue, you know, look, Dylan, Dylan's musicality took him places probably nobody else could take him. And his lyrics were just uh, mind boggling at the time. I mean, Dylan is is special, but Oaks was special, too. He should have had a wider audience, but it's insidious. It's like you say, you know. Even good people will say, well, we can't sell this. We can't market this. There's not an audience as opposed to, you know, people need to hear this. This is important. That's not the imperative. The imperative is, you know, how can we make a lot of money easily? Uh, and then with that comes uh, these kind of assumptions about, you know, challenging the status quo is not a way to make money easily. So, you know, it's repression is more than just, the FBI sitting in a car outside your house. That's extreme, that's heavy, and it's worth noting. Um, but there's other ways to repress people. Um, and, you know, some people you know, just fall into despair because they have such great ideas and they have such a fierce artistic drive and nobody hears them. I mean, that's that's a, a kind of torture that's, that's in many ways worse than, you know, being publicly tried saying certain things yeah and i think that it's also there's a foul there's sort of like a cognitively dissonant fallacy in that is like you can't sell this stuff but anytime that a whiff of that stuff does get through it blows up it's like the popularity of the bernie sanders movement you know it's like 
popular wisdom before that were that his his ideas were outside of the mainstream, that it's impossible to run a national campaign without taking corporate money. And he did it twice. And it took, you know, and then you'll still say have people who will push the cognitively dissonant line that, well, he lost. So none of so none of that's true. It wasn't a successful campaign. He didn't raise millions of dollars. There were there aren't people there aren't people across a wide swath of this country who are who don't fit the you know the stereotype you might have of what a Bernie bro is who all were totally supportive of these supposedly radical ideas and su- totally supportive of this supposedly out there figure and to the point of doing the thing that in America we take the most seriously actually giving their money to it giving our our money to it I'll, I'll i'm clearly a partisan here yeah well sanders uh you know it's sanders kind of what i was saying they kind of upholded you know they didn't say bernie sanders can't run for president and you know we're not going to give him any tv coverage and this and that i mean they covered him just enough to be ignored um you know especially you know, not this this last primary but uh when it was him and Hillary Clinton, I mean, this guy is like, you know, you know, barnstorming across the country. And who's on television? Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's more than one way, one way to skin a cat. Speaking of which, uh, so my book ends by with a kind of a where are they now? What happened? Right. Because the other thing that happens, I was thinking of John Lennon's song, Imagine, which you can hear in the supermarkets or you know on the elevators and stuff and it's just turned into this peace and love song which i remember Huey Newton re- remarking well it's actually talking about communism you know no countries no religion you know i mean it's a it's a it's a subversive song but the way it's been neutered is by redefining it uh, similarly Pete Seeger when he died um you know he is on all his life you know, he is, he is under surveillance. Um, and for decades, he was on a list to be put essentially in a detention center in the event of a crisis. Him, Woody Guthrie, Cisco Houston, Lee Hayes, Alan Lomax, they were all on this list that in the event of something like a war with the Soviet Union, they were going to be picked up and put in camps. Um, and the U.S., you know, the FBI did these lists. The CIA did these lists, too. And if you were on a list like that in Indonesia in 1965, 1966, it would mean the end of your life. So these these lists are not a joke. You know, I'm not saying that they would have been executed in the U.S. because it's you know, more powerful and doesn't have to resort to that kind of extremism. But so once they die, they get redefined. You know, Seeger dies and uh, Kristen Gillibrand, Chuck Schumer, oh, Pete sang, this land is your land from sea to shining sea. Well, Pete was a communist. Yeah. You know, you know, let's not forget that. And Woody Guthrie, I, I mean, I, I've done some research and uh, uh, this scholar, Ron Radosh, has done some research on this, too. I mean, the common assumption is that Woody was such a free spirit he was never in the Communist Party but if you look close he actually was in the party for a short time he had discipline issues so they said you know just go be a fellow traveler and supported but he was in the party 
Um, he got suspended for not showing up at Redditch Village to sell the Daily Worker because the Communist Party in its infinite wisdom felt that Woody Guthrie should be selling newspapers. Um, but the point is, is he was an extremely partisan. Of course, now he's dead. They're, they're naming dams after him. You know, yeah. and, and they're trying to turn him into something he wasn't. And, and I'm not even saying what he was was this great exemplary thing and not, and, you know, worthy of, you know, looking at critically. But he was what he was. And as a historian, I, uh, I, I get a little bit frustrated when people try to act as if things were other than what they were. It's not helpful. I mean, your point of, you know, the ground we're standing on is a result of the the ground those have come before us have tread let's look at what's that you know what the soil is actually comprised of to extend the metaphor it's not helpful to make believe it's something other than what it was but when these people die they get you know alan lomax got i believe it's a national medal of the arts from ronald freaking reagan i mean there's an actual picture i mean i don't know what yeah you know, i mean if i were alan lomax i would have said you, you keep it but um, but that's that's the level of embrace. Well, you know, now that you know, we can make you less dangerous by embracing you now that you're old men, you know, or or dead. Yeah, yeah, I think that's you know that's the case. Obviously, with Martin Luther King, to you know, to some degree, also like with any of these figures, once they once the revolutionaries become national treasures, you have to. I'm using this term because to me, it's. It is the cognitive dissonance that comes from erasing history that keeps us from being able being able to think clearly, and whether that's like the functioning of uh, of a government or a democracy, or it's just as an artist wanting to find intelligent people to speak to and to share to engage with. Uh, that is the you know the cognitive dissonance and the lack of intelligence is the enemy. Uh, we talk about it. One of the things that I engage with on the show. I mean, we're this is way this is this is a lot more fun for me because I'm really interested in this uh, material. But usually, this is more like a psychological show, and we're exploring our feelings and our thoughts and our desires through asking our questions to the to the pop oracle. And one of the things that I say I talk about intelligence a lot is like the intelli- intelligence is the willingness to be in a place of not knowing the answers. And I feel like that is discouraged when it comes to certain topics. Like we're only allowed to think of the civil rights movement up into the point where we have to start saying, well, yeah, if we celebrate the civil rights movement, then we have to celebrate the communists who were ahead of the game and supporting them, you know, just on a level of being like ahead of the game, like that that American thing about being first to get a new and, better idea like on every level they're american heroes but we can't have that conversation and if we can't have that conversation we start limiting not just what we can talk about but what we can think about and Mm -hmm. that to me is like the biggest danger we're facing more than the external threats is this just sort of whittling down of our cultural intelligence to engage any level of complexity beyond us good, them bad. (laughs) Um, So that's a little bit of a rant, but uh, uh, do you have a response to that? Well, I I was actually 
thinking, no, I, I, I think that's a very thoughtful comment. I was thinking about what to ask the Oracle. And oh, yeah, good. That's kind of what I was doing was a little bit trying to run out the clock a little bit and give you a little bit of time to think. Yeah, I don't know it'll work. Try. If Woody Guthrie were with us today, what advice would he give us? And now, since we're doing it with my app here, I'm going to give it a shake. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's a song from Randy Kaplan called Wooden Arms. song mr kaplan that's wooden arms wooden arms and that was wooden arms from randy kaplan recorded on august 23rd 2005 on radio eight ball on kaos in olympia washington and randy is a real like he's a genuine folk singer i've known him all my adult life, pretty much. I met him playing music in Los Angeles with folks like Dan Byrne and Danny Peck 
and uh, Chris Chandler, other uh, sort of activist-type folk singers that I knew back then and still know. And he's also, like Woody Guthrie, gone on to write a lot of songs for kids. And so that was the answer to uh, Aaron's question. If Woody Guthrie were here today, what advice would he give us? So I have some ideas, but Aaron, what do you think about that as the answer to the question? Well, yeah, interesting, uh, interesting chorus. If I woke, I woke up today, I'm a different man, but if you forgot who I was, I'll show you who I am. Yeah, baby, I woke up. If I if if you forgot the way I was, I'll tell you who I am. Yeah. Yeah, I I kind of read some continuity in that. I mean, the Yeah. Uh, I mean, Guthrie would obviously be different, but at the same time I think, you know, maybe I'm just doing a little transference. I think the fighting spirit would would still be there. Um, you know, cuz that's why do we care about Woody Guthrie's? Because he never he never stopped. He never gave up. Well, I mean, I I mean, the song is about someone who is like he's dealing with issues with his temper, and he's flaring up, and he's having these trials by fire. And I I guess I I'm thinking that there's like this complexity that gets lost when we like we don't see him we we see him as sort of the happy hobo now. The sort of uh, the maybe the persona that he put across in his early radio shows, but the if you study Woody Guthrie or any of these people, they're complex and like you were mentioning Phil Oaks, like the you know people who are people don't become revolutionaries unless they are sort of driven by some kind of demons in themselves that say no, I just I can't. I mean, I guess maybe let me back up. Maybe this is just a white guy thing to say. Like, if you're being, if you're being, if your family is being under attack in ways that people who don't look like Woody Guthrie or Pete Seeger are, it leads to a different kind of activism. But to become a Woody Guthrie and or a Pete Seeger and to sort of reject the privileges you have to make common cause with the people who don't, to be driven to that, even to the point of, you know, of being targeted by the state, there has to be something that drives you. And part of that's a conscience, definitely. And part of that is courage. But also, as we know from these, you know, our study of these figures, it's also comes from being, you know, whether it's Abby Hoffman or Phil Oaks or Woody Guthrie, these are troubled men. Takes a worried man to sing a worried song. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. I was just watching a I was just watching a movie from the 70s called Born to Win with George Siegel and there's a scene with him driving in the car singing uh singing along with Karen Black singing that exact same song just synchronicity. <laughs> um Yeah. Uh Oh, wait a second. Wooden Arms. Woody Woody, yeah, wooden exactly, arm. Exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's That's almost like if he if his advice would I I would give you a hug. <laughs> like I would have you smell how I actually smell and feel how I actually felt. Like I can't even say it in words, right? Well, and then there's also there the there's the uh military reading of that. Oh yeah. Beat your swords into plowshares. Yeah. But you know, the thing with Woody is uh 
I mean, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, the, these artists in particular, you know, they are artists, which means, you know, their sensitivity antenna, you know, are bigger than, you know, than us non-artists, you know. I mean, their their sense of emotional uh, receptivity is such that, you know, that they can say things hopefully on a much deeper uh, level than just, you know, normal conversation and such. Uh, saying that, you know, Woody's strength, I mean, Woody had a number of strengths. Uh, one thing among all the folk singers, you get the sense of uh, him having some historical historical perspective. I mean, he could write topical stuff that is pretty forgettable, but uh, you read through these conversations and he is arguing for writing songs that stand the test of time. Um, so, you know, artistically, he's actually trying to speak across the decades. And the other thing about Woody that's really profound is his love for the people. And I think it probably had to do with his own sense of loss, his own humanity. I mean, he was pretty terrible when it came to, you know, his first family and uh, yeah. arguably the way he treated women and things of this sort. But I think at his core, he had a love for the people living in the camps, not having a home, you know, things of this sort. And I'm sure it, it sprung from his own personal experience, but it allowed him to write songs that, um, you know, still speak to us today in, in ways that some of the other songs, uh, you know, like uh, Fell By Your Gun about uh, the uh, Russian sniper in World War II. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a novelty, even though historically it's interesting. Um, it's not quite the same as Pastures of Plenty, uh, which or you know train wreck, plane wreck at Los Gatos, which anybody can pick up that song and have a hit as long as they put their heart into it because it's just got so much humanity and it speaks to you know the way things current currently are. So time passes. And here we are with Randy Kaplan, the songwriter and the performer behind Wooden Arms with some insight into the song as far as how the song relates to Aaron's question. So, Randy, welcome back to Radio 8 Ball. Thank you, Andras. And what do you think about Wooden Arms as the answer to Aaron's question about Woody Guthrie? It was your your short conversation with Aaron about it was amazing. Of course, I love to hear the song being taken out of the realm of mythology of self and applied to um, something bigger, which is interestingly when I think is interesting when I think about the song now, after hearing the question and hearing you guys discuss it, it really uh, is conducive to that because the whole setup of the song, the stars are on one hand, the stars are only fireflies, you know, and on the other hand, I could count the heavenly bodies like there's and they don't I think the lyric change, I changed it in the studio. The original is on one hand, I could say the stars are only fireflies and not so far away. And the original said, on the other hand, I could count the times I made you feel secure and I don't amount to much. But the lyric change is, is interesting. Just basically the dichotomy set up between the, that sublime, pleasant horror of looking out into the vastness of space and time and notice, knowing that we're nothing, you know, in the, in the scheme of things, yet understanding that this moment is all and we really do matter and it matters, you know? And that that whole thing about um, what you guys were talking about, that Woody Guthrie had some topical kind of novelty songs that kind of go away, but he also wrote to the universal, you know, um, and, and certain specific 
um, things can be can it can still uh, stand out to us, even though they're in their specificity, because they they have just all this humanity and um, portent and meaning still, even though the situation has changed. So that struck me, and I like what you guys were saying about the you know people tend to um, you know. Um, think of what he got through, like this kind of sanitized version of him as like the happy hobo but yet he was a man with with uh passions and was not you know he has some some knocks against his character if you look closely but so does everybody and the part of the song uh that you guys you know talking about the temper of the narrator the, the hypothetical narrator of the song who um screws up relationships you know by losing his temper and the, the part where it says to prove her wrong, I kicked a wall and crawled into the hole. It's like people in, do their best to uh, to um, vindicate themselves and wind up just digging themselves further into a hole. The very behavior they're trying to prove they don't, um, that isn't, isn't bad, they repeat. And it turns out badly. And of course, we're, you know, obviously alluding to current um, without naming things exactly, we all relate our, this to our political situation in the in the present, obviously. And the and the worn wooden arms you guys pointed out. Obviously, it's funny that the uh, the name wooden arms in the song. The the way I read it, anyway. Now, years later, I go, oh, so the wooden arms are like the arms of a chair that have been worn worn maybe by this person who's no longer present. So the narrator can't touch that person anymore, can't touch that time, but can still touch the wooden arms and and feel the effect of that person um, through what what they changed. And you know what you guys are talking about with Woody Guthrie's effect on not just folk music and and political thought, but on you know pop culture and culture in general. Is his presence is still very much felt by those of us who know him and sing his songs and still t talk about him. Um, so the, the false alarm part was that's about someone leaving too early. In this case, the, the person, the narrator of the song pulled a false alarm and ended, somehow ended uh, something, ended a relationship, whether it's, you know, in the case of this personal, you know, romantic relationship or whatever, but it could also be a relationship with a movement or with a time or with an idea. So that spoke to me. He, he of course, left much too early. And um, what else did I think? Oh, this whole saying everyone who ever lived is about the same age is basically, again, saying the whole, you know, human, human beings ever since we became self-conscious as a species and said, oh, we don't like to be naked like other animals. You know, that's kind of like the biblical Adam and Eve waking up story. It's basically about human humanity becoming a self-conscious race of people you know that is a blip of time so in the it, it, Woody Guthrie's time seems so far away from us but it really is right now it's it's pretty similar where you know when you think when we look back I always I tell my students this like if you look back and see um think of Mozart and then think of Beethoven and think of Wagner like they go they, they don't know like they think oh those guys are all the same age it's hundreds of years ago but so to us, we like make a big deal of 30 years, 50 years, 60 years. But in the, if you pull back, it's all kind of one thing. And that speaks to, of course, the ideal of communism, not in any way it's been acted out, obviously, so far. But in the ideal, we, it recognizes the 
the, that we're all interlinked and we're all a murder is a suicide and uh we're we're all you know the cliche in it we're all in it together which is a, a true cliche um and then the call to action of course i thought of was you know it's it, another false dichotomy setup you know torn between a call for an overhaul and a total change you know heads i win tails you lose it's like no matter what we have to change things we have to fix the world there's no other choice of, of just letting laissez-faire anymore. It's like overhaul it or totally change it. Pick one while I'm forcing a card on you here, you know, as the narrator in the song is forcing a card on, on himself. Like, I don't want to live this existence. I have to change. So those were my first, uh, you know, thoughts, this blending of the micro macro. You know, if you learn a micro thing pretty, pretty well, you can apply it to the macro and get some insights. And I think you guys did a beautiful job of, uh, of, uh, you know, um, fleshing out some of the lyrics to apply to the question of what Woody would say if he were here. And I'm honored to be, be a part of that conversation. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I particularly love the, I had not thought about the arms of a chair and I'm glad that it just, I love how it can mean so many different things. Cause when we finished that conversation, uh, Aaron and I, I walked away thinking, Oh, I wish I had talked about Woody's guitar like it's a wooden arm that kills fascists. Yes, great. And arms, as uh, as Aaron mentioned, arms as in you know armaments. Right. And what are wooden arm? Wooden is like stiff and old fashioned. It's almost like we can't fight current. Uh, we can't use past tools necessarily. Maybe they're antiquated already, but yet they're in the same spirit of things. Fighting. You yeah. Know? <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, and it could be uh, that makes a lot of sense. The wooden arms in that sense, and also. Woody's guitar, of course. This machine kills fascists. Great, I love it. And yeah. you know, while we have you here, just to give you a quick chance to shout out where where should we send people? What are you working on that we should send people to check out? During this whole pandemic, I've been releasing singles. Um, I I told uh, I told the uh, Kids Place Live station that plays my stuff. I'm going to release a political EP, political songs for children. They're like, what? How could that be possible? You know, like, so like the mask is a mask is like your underwear. There's like a little political statement there. My new yeah. song is not out yet. It's called uh, the mouth is connected to the nose for these people that wear their masks below their nose. And <laughs> thank you very much for standing next to the little old immune compromised lady at the grocery store and breathing all your respiratory droplets all over her. So I don't know if that that's going to pass muster with the kids gang. But I find that as I go on, I could kind of just make songs and let people decide whether they're kids songs or not, which is. You know, but my my website, of course, I try to keep it relatively up to date and um, with uh, with uh, the latest singles. Hopefully, I'll get back to making a record again one day. But you know, who knows the viability of that stuff anymore? No one buys uh, records anymore, I guess. Right? I still do, even on Apple Music. I listen to entire records, but that's us. We're old school. Yeah. Well, I think. Uh... You wouldn't say it, and we didn't say it on the show, but I think that the easy answer is that Woody Guthrie is alive and well in the musicians like yourself who continue in that tradition. And the fact that you are writing political songs for kids, I feel like is a very... You couldn't get any closer 
to <laughs> continuing Woody's legacy than that. So it, it was. And a, Andres, I never, I never would consider myself a political singer. Remember Dan Byrne trying? I was like, oh, the political songs. That's where it's at. And I tried to write one, and it wound up being all about me anyway. You know, it's like a romantic poet. But, you know, and, and it's funny you say that. I was going to bring that up too. That at that one anti-war rally the Iraq war, we all, that one, that Pan Pacific Park major, you know, event we all played at. I played the hippo and I redid a Phil Oak song, uh, you know, updating it from, um, I guess I, I put it, Saddam Hussein was, um, can't remember who his forebear was, probably like Vice President Dodd. <laughs> but, uh, or me, I changed Dodd to Quail and, uh, oh yeah, the, uh, you know, Mao Zedong, I guess, turned to a uh, but anyway, the hippo and the critter has now been revamped, and I, I only had to change. I changed very little, you know. And now I'm going to put it. I'm. I've been meaning to make that, release it in the you know context of hey, this is a kids song, and it's a political song, but it's not specific. I don't think. I think either side would be be like, oh yeah, this vindicates me. But if you listen to it, all it does is point out the general trait of hypocrisy, <laughs> not not any kind of. Yeah, I don't think you could sing a kids. I don't know. What do you think? Can you sing a specific kids political song? I guess with alienating fifty percent of the people. Well, I think you're. I think you're right. It's a, when you're writing political songs for kids, you get to sort of basic principles. Yes. I, I, I wish. I wish that people on who claim to be on the left were as vigilant against hypocrisy from our people we consider to be on our side the Bidens, the Harrises, and so on and so forth, as we are at pointing out the hypocrisy of those who continue to support the Donald Trumps and the Mitch McConnells. Like, there's, I feel like if we could get everyone just to admit that hypocrisy is something that we need to be vigilant against in ourselves, it would solve these larger issues down the line. Yes. I think that's the a key. Amen. Amen to that. And I, could, I couldn't agree more. That's the main Thing. Like even to be a self-acknowledged hypocrite is you're on a you're further on the path to enlightenment or yep. being a human rather than just being a hypocrite and being in denial about it. Of course, you don't want to be a hypocrite, but we all are and we're bound to be in some way, you know, and to admit it is to, you know, then people can't give you the, you know, that you can't fall victim to the, you know, fallacy of. You know, pointing out someone's a hypocrite doesn't make their idea bad, but, you know, it's it sort of helps to acknowledge, oh, I'm not living up to my standards here. Maybe I shouldn't be so harsh on the other guy then until we're all, you know, on the same page. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That wasn't... Well, I'm going to toss this back to our conversation. Uh, I'm, okay. You know, we got to have you back on the show just when we're, when we get back to doing shows where we actually record musicians. Yeah. I think I'm going to go once we're, once we're, we're set free again. I think I'm going to go on a road trip and I'm just going to travel around like Alan Lomax recording some awesome. of my favorite songwriters <laughs> just doing Radio 8 Ball shows in their nice. in their house. That'd be great. So yeah. look out. I'm, I'm, I'm coming to get you, Randy. You're welcome. Time passes. So, you know, I mean, I'm predisposed to hear things a certain way. But you said Phil Oaks, um, getting back to artists being a certain of a certain character. I, I was reading his bio, I think Schumacher, I, I may have that name wrong, but there's this scene where Phil, another person and Bob Dylan are in an apartment and Phil Oakes' apartment is just a freaking mess. And and the other person is like, oh, Phil, get it together, man. This is just, you know, how can you live like this? And Dylan defends Phil. 
I mean, everybody knows Dylan is get out of the car. You're just yeah. a journalist. But this story I remember is like Dylan defends Phil. Yeah, he's messy, but you know, God damn it, you know, he's an artist. You know, give him a little slack. I, I thought that was cool on Dylan's part. I hope the story was true. Well, he also came back for the Victor Hara events that Phil Oaks put on later. I think there's it, it this is again, this is one of those things. This Here's these two artists, Phil Oaks and Bob Dylan, who have so much uh, respect for each other, history together. They have one argument, and that's what we talk about. We set these two where, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Bob Dylan, like, again, I've had, you know, we were, <laughs> I'm not going to say which one, but I rattled off a few names of artists there that I used to play shows with back in L.A. I've had fights with, well, I've had fights with all of them. I've had arguments with all of them that would lead to one of us jumping out or throw, being thrown out of a car. And I would never want to be set at odds with their artistry or what they do. Like, we, we're passionate people. We'll argue with each other about... I mean, we talk about Pat. Pat and I argue all the time online. Most never in person. But again, I hope that it's always a matter... For certain types of people, again, the Woody Guthrie types, and I, and I guess I... In of the broadest sense, I include myself in that type of, you know, a guy who is willing to carry a guitar and oppose fascists and make friends and enemies while doing it. And, you know, we, we're just, we have, we're passionate people who have so much in common. And yet, and part of what we have in common is that desire to engage, whether it's an argument or an you know, an agreement or that in like sharing common cause in argument against something else. Because all of us are writing against something that we find to be oppressive or for something that we find to be desirable. So, well, you know, as you were speaking, it kind of uh, opened up a door in my thinking, which I hadn't realized. Yeah, everybody knows or quite a few people know that, you know, Phil Oaks was once told to get out of Bob Dylan's car. Uh, people don't know, you know, Dylan, when he left his ties with the old left milieu, um, you know, in the in the folk revival, you know, he did it with a lot of ambivalence and he did it with a, an appreciation of what people like Oaks and Tom Paxton and Barbara Dean were doing. I mean, he actually wrote in Broadside Magazine, one of his free verse things, you know? Um, and he talks about James Foreman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I mean, look, Dylan made a break with singing overtly protest music. Um, and that's what he did. And, you know, look, it's, he's an artist, it's his decision. He gets to do what he wants. Uh, but he didn't say these people are screwed up who are doing this. But yet the story the mainstream culture tells us is this schism. You know, so I, I would argue there's a certain comfort uh, the mainstream has with putting that out. Yeah, people should hear the story. It actually happened. But there's other another relationship Dylan and Oaks had, too. You know, they were all part of a community at a certain point. Um, and I mean, you know, you need that. Right. I mean, I think what you're saying is, yeah, people do need to argue and they need to argue passionately. Um, but they're doing it mainly to propel things forward. I mean, I, I think people who really, you know, give a shit about the art aren't trying to destroy other artists who are 
you know, also trying to do good work. Um, you know, but you know, it doesn't mean everybody agrees and it's all just one happy family. You know, and that contention, if it's if it's good, if it's principled, actually helps take things up and take them take them ahead. But you know, I want to think on that a little bit more because, uh, like I said, the, the writing I'm doing now is to try to see the uh, the more insidious ways uh, things get suppressed, um, as well as the more more overt ways. Because in the '60s, you know, the El FBI has a file on Jim Morrison, and they have a file on Elvis, but they're not the same. I mean, with Elvis, it's more they're worried about his safety. Elvis is never uh, suspected of radicalism. I mean, Hoover's uncomfortable with rock and roll, but that's that's the extent of it. I mean, there are FBI files in the 60s, but they're not well, to the same extent well, they were with the folk singers. I bet, and I bet that the ones that they have the the files on are the people who didn't become the Jim Morrisons and the Elvises. Like, that's it. I think feel I feel like... At each level, through each generation, the process of figuring out how to stop the Bob Marleys or the uh, Phil Oakeses or the Woody Guthrie's before they find an audience is the real work. Like occasionally there are some that get through or there are some that get through and then change uh, in the middle, like say maybe like a John Lennon did. Uh but uh, I feel like at this point, it's, a, it's very effective. There's a very effective machinery in terms of, well, it, in terms of on the one, on the commercial level, keeping it narrow and sort of like what the, the, the person, and I, I don't want to say that it was Billy Bragg's manager at the time, it was someone who worked in that, in that department. Again, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus because they were giving me good advice that I chose not to take about the you know the commercial viability of being a protest singer or any even someone who engages in that on a regular basis uh but i feel like this story is maybe this is a good place it kind of is a good place to end because it does lead us on to your your next work which it sounds like that's where you're going is you're looking at Again, the artists, the next generation of the artists who are standing on the shoulders of these folk singers, um, and that story, and it's and in folk, it's the stories we tell, and we really, it's funny the story about the disagreement over was it please crawl out your window, that's what that the Phil Oaks didn't right. like that Dylan song, and Dylan and loved was, that song. Yeah, right, and, and he was right. It's a, it's not as good a song yeah, as I. Positively Street. I love that song. I see. I, if I was in the car, I would have been laughing. I would have been the guy laughing until they started criticizing my songs, and then I would kick them both out of the car. But I think what's what's funny is that that's the story we tell: is a disagreement over a song. But we don't talk about the agreement about the uh, the like the Victor Hara event. And and for people who don't know, Victor Hara was a, a folk singer in Chile who opposed the government and Phil Oaks was a good friend of his and he was killed in a really brutal way. And Phil Oaks came back to America and put on this big, I think it was several nights of events at the at Madison Square Garden. And it was sort of Dylan 
it was Dylan joining up with that that made it such a huge event. And that agreement is a revolutionary agreement. The thing that happened in the car is a personal disagreement, creative disagreement, which is meaningless. Like, I think any of us who are artists will say, yeah, but they're meaningless. I mean, they're they're important. They're good. They're fun. But that's not it's not an important conversation going on in that car where what's going on at Madison Square Garden is. And that gets left out of the conversation. And we tell this story. And then that's the folk process telling us what's important and what isn't important. So uh, that's me ranting a bit. But I want to let you sort of have the last word here connecting the work that you did in uh, the Folk Singers and the Bureau and the work that you're currently doing and maybe how that connects to all of this that we've explored? Well, it's that, you know, it, you know, there is no great model to be striving for. I mean, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, uh, communists in the U.S. thought the Soviet Union was a model of a society that could transcend, you know, where things were at the moment. And that doesn't exist. It was largely illusory. Um, it wasn't what they thought it was, but it, it's, it's not even on the horizon at all. And in the uh, long 60s, you know, people started to confront, you know, the Soviet Union was not appealing. Some people looked at, you know, Maoist China as a model, you know, that turned out you know, by the mid 70s to be, you know, turning into a full market economy. We live in a world today in which, you know, state socialism or communism doesn't exist. And it doesn't seem like there's anything early on the horizon of a model of how society ought to be organized. So that tempers how the authorities are going after, you know, insurgent music, as it were. I mean, there's no organized, you know, push against organized musicians you know musicians are not partisans particularly in the 60s i've discovered they're not tied to organizations except for people like dave van ronk who was a lifelong trotskyist he has a rather big file and barbara dane has a big file because she was uh had lasting she had had long ties with the communist party and kept up with progressive causes and the point of all that setup is you know, a lot of what we're on after the long 60s is this uncharted place where, you know, the repression isn't full on organized. But what we're seeing is uh, there's this uh, Mark Fisher, this political theorist. Unfortunately, he uh, he's not with us anymore. Uh, he tragically took his life a few years ago. He's a writer for my publisher, Repeater Books. Uh, but he has this short book called Capitalist Realism. And he says, you know, look, capitalists are telling us basically this is it and don't dream anything else. This is what we have to deal with. And, you know, it's just out of the question to think it could be otherwise. And I, I think I would argue that, you know, these artists all along have been refusing to accept that, you know, that it can be otherwise. I, I think the answers they've come up with haven't always been satisfactory. You know, but that drive for answers needs to go on. You know, humanity needs to be in a better place. Um, and to the degree good songs come forward and argue for it, it makes, you know, life worth living. So I guess that's what I would say. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks for doing this. And um, I hope we can encourage people more people to uh, check out your book 
not just so you you've got the the folk singers and the bureau, but you also have a couple of other books. You've yeah, written? I have a book called Heavy Radicals about it's the biggest investigation the FBI conducted in the early seventies that you know nobody's heard about was against the Maoists in the United States. And the second book is called A Threat of the First Magnitude, which uh, talks about various informants from czarist Russia up into uh, uh, the 70s, informants who not only joined the organization and gave information to the czar or the FBI, but they actually attained leading positions in those organizations. And I you know, document how they did that and you know, the, the uh, bad things that that led to. So after writing those two books, I wanted to try to change the subject up a little bit. So that's that led me to music, which is, uh, you know, a different vocabulary in many ways. I mean, I'm not a musicologist. I'm a historian, but I love music. So there it is. And the next thing you were saying is, I, I think I saw you post somewhere about it. You're... Yeah, it's called Music, Rebellion and Repression uh, from the Great Folk Scare to the Revolution in Rock. 1955-1973. Uh, I signed a contract for the book, so look for it in the next couple years. Okay, well, you know, it's the goal of myself and many others to someday find ourselves in books such as these. <laughs> I will make a note of that. <laughs> well, I I hope, you know, the t- based upon the timeline we're laying out, it'll probably be your students writing for... Uh, my uh, my young nieces and nephews, because <laughs> the truth can't be told while we're still while we're still walking the earth. It's too it's too difficult. Right? Exactly. Well, what's the Joe Strummer uh, documentary? The future is unwritten. Yeah, yeah. You'll be getting to him. You know, that's probably the book after. This. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're not going to catch up to <laughs> to the. You know, the post, uh, I don't know, the, what would it be? The post-computer folk singers uh, yeah. is like, there's a, just like, there are, there's been so much music that people have been putting out and telling, and just sp- spitting into this thing, this internet, and that goes so ignored by the, by the world. And I'm not just talking about mine, I'm just, you know, just millions of people making art that you know we we just know that the that a hundred years from now when we look back at all of it and if we you know as people pour through this stuff there are going to be gems that are unearthed and lives of artists that are unearthed like we're talking about phil oaks or these people and you're going to see their struggles and it will be true folk art made by people who are long gone um so yeah there's your work will your your work is endless uh you, you have much to explore oh so no vacation isn't it a vacation to be able to study and write about music and go do talk about it <laughs> i think i think that the chinese had this saying uh what a joy it is to struggle with heaven oh let's leave it with that that's perfect Thank you for giving your attention and intention to this episode of Radio 8 Ball Season 3, The Appening. Please remember to subscribe to Radio 8 Ball in your podcast app. And if you like the show, please help other people find us by rating and reviewing Radio 8 Ball positively. If you tell your synchronicity story, I'll read it on the show. 
Of course, we encourage you to download the Radio 8-Ball app from the iTunes App Store and check out our merchandise at the link on our website. And finally, I do hope you'll join our Patreon campaign. The Patreon link is in the show notes. We're going to go out with Three Day Weekend, a song I wrote, which appeared on my album uh, Curmudgeon for All Seasons, which was released in the year 2000. The song was inspired in part by my participation in the WTO protests in Seattle in 1999 and by stories my grandfather told me about marching with striking auto workers in Detroit at Ford Motors in the 1930s. And with that, I'm out. Until next time, I'm your host, Andras Jones, wishing you lots of spine-tingling synchronicities, connections with the natural world, and all the inspiration you can handle. They gathered in the streets by the millions Their destiny to meet by the factory And though they died in prison Or were assassinated Their children would be free Let's see They wanted revolution They got a three-day weekend So I can go down to the mall And buy myself a soda Get my girl a shawl The days are getting colder And baby, that ain't If I were half the man that came before me, I think I'd probably be about half the man that stands before you. And if he were here, he'd probably disagree with me because of Just a three-day weekend So you can go down to the store And consume a little more You're always needing You can say I've got it better Than they had it So I'd better not complain Well, I Same, except there's more pollution. The 
drugs to keep us tame The TV generation's got fluoride on the brain And money in the bloodstream No wonder we're insane Gotta keep on swimming upstream Keep on swimming Keep on swimming upstream Keep on swimming It's the radio wave.